Thank you for listening to the Calvary Church Podcast. If this ministry has been a blessing to you, would you let us know? Send an email to toledocalvary.org. We would love to hear what God is doing in your life today. Well, again, good morning, Calvary. So glad that you're here today. Grab your Bibles with me if you would, please, whether you have in a print or a digital form, turn to Matthew chapter three. We're gonna be in Matthew chapter three today. As you're turning there, can we thank Leah for bringing a good challenge to us last week as a church? And uh, so thankful for that reminder of the difference we can make in the lives in our community, especially in our schools. And uh, while you're turning there, let me give you just a little kind of follow-up on some things. Um, if you remember, we have kind of since, uh, since we kind of came back to in-person services in 2020, added and had a Thursday night service. We took a break from that Thursday night service for uh, July and August, and we're reevaluating. And it looks like at this time, and I know that that's probably most of you are, are 10 o'clockers, shout out 10 o'clockers, right? Um, but that we won't be going back to that Thursday night service as we go into the fall. And I'll give you, I'll give you some reasons, rationale why. One of those things is, you know how sometimes you, you only have so many resources, and so sometimes there's good things that you go, we, we can't continue to do those, those good things because of some limitations that we have or other places where we'd be good for our resources to go. Does that make sense? So here's, here's what we're gonna do kind of instead of the Thursday night service, we're gonna go back to something that we did um, pre-pandemic and one of my favorite things where we had what we called a first Wednesday service. So the first Wednesday of every month, we will have seven o'clock in this room, a, a special service that's a little bit different and gives us an opportunity to do some things that maybe our timing does not allow us to do on a typical Sunday morning. So it allows us the opportunity for some extended time of worship. It gives us an opportunity to look at some biblical principles and, and things that might go a little bit deeper in some ways than what we typically would look at on a Sunday morning. And it gives us the opportunity to spend some time in prayer together and particularly at an altar seeking God and the work of the Holy Spirit in our individual lives. So these are some really important things that are kind of healthy for us, not just as believers, but for us as a church. So starting September 7th, we're kind of get back in that rhythm of doing what we call a first Wednesday service. And so I'd encourage you even now, mark your calendars. It's something you're not gonna wanna miss. There's, there's a, something special that comes when we deliberately seek the Lord together and uh, know it's, it's gonna be some really special times together. Well, we have been working our way through the Gospel of Matthew. So we started a while back and we were looking at Jesus' family tree, kind of his genealogy and the role that those different Old Testament people play as we look at the person of Jesus Christ. And then for the month of July, we celebrated Christmas in July, did we not? And took a look at that. Now we're gonna start a new series as we work through the next couple of chapters in the Gospel of Matthew that we're gonna call Follow Me. Because what you're gonna see here in a couple of weeks and, and the things we're gonna look at lead up to this, Jesus calls the disciples to follow him, to be his disciples. And there's something uniquely powerful about when he does that, when you surrender your life to him and the difference then that it makes in our own. So we're gonna be working our way through particularly chapters three and four of the Gospel of Matthew. It's, it's gonna be kind of a fun study to take a look at these things. And as we do, we're gonna jump right in and look at one of the most, I couldn't, I couldn't come up with a better word than unique characters in all of scripture. Matthew chapter three, verse one. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Today we're gonna look at John 
the Baptist. Now, if you're not familiar maybe with the story of Jesus or with this individual, John the Baptist does not tell you what church he went to, right? You know that, right? In fact, I'm pretty sure that John the Baptist was John the Pentecostal. Anybody else? Like, that's what I think. But we're gonna look at this guy, John the Baptist. Who is he? Well, you find kind of his origin story in, in the Gospel of Luke. It tells you about his birth. It kind of intertwines right with the story of Jesus' birth. And we're not gonna take time to look at that today. His father, Zechariah, his mother, Elizabeth. It's really a fascinating story. But let's fast forward to where we are in Matthew. Matthew chapter three, verse four, describes John the Baptist. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. Did I tell you he was unique? Right, when you read that, you can't help but picture this guy, can't you? Now, when it talks about a clothes of camel hair, most likely this was camel hair that was woven into a thick, rough, dark cloth, which was used as an outer garment or cloak. Anybody else itchy? Right, largely something that'd be worn by someone who was poor, oftentimes worn by those who were nomadic desert dwellers. It was so dense that it was waterproof. Now it ain't so bad, right? <laughs> but the other thing that it was, was it kind of symbolized in its sackcloth nature, the idea of repentance, which you're gonna see is very important to the life of John the Baptist as we look through these things. Now, now, one of the things that's interesting about this is John not only wore this because this was kind of not uncommon where he lived or not uncommon for what he was trying to communicate. It wasn't just normal. It was symbolic. Take, take a look at this. There's a story in 2 Kings chapter 1 where these individuals come to the king and say, hey, we have a message to bring to you from this messenger. And the king asks in verse 7, what kind of man was it who came to meet you and told you this? And they replied, he had a garment of hair and had a leather belt around his waist. Sound familiar? Right? It's, it's very similar to the description of John the Baptist. And the king said, well, that was Elijah the Tishbite. He wasn't excited to know that this message came from Elijah. That's a whole other story. But do you see that John's look, even his very look that we read about in the Gospel of Matthew connects us back to the person of Elijah in 2 Kings chapter 1? It's pretty important. We also read that John's food was locusts and honey. Here's just kind of an idea of what the locust might have looked like. Breakfast, anyone? It's kind of an interesting thing because we look at that and go, oh, that grasshopper's kind of nasty. And yet, even in many parts of the world today, locusts like that could be ground up, would be an important source of protein and fat, and we're gonna start serving them in the cafe next Sunday. If it was chocolate covered, would you try it? Raise your hand. Who'd try it if it was chocolate covered? That's what I thought, yeah. <laughs> Some of you chocoholics couldn't resist. <laughs> Honey was probably the only real sweetener source that they had in those times. And so this was John's diet, really probably not that unusual for that weird part of the world where he was at, because you've got to imagine, John is in the wilderness of Judea outside of Jerusalem. He is outside of the city. And, and for those of you that maybe have had the opportunity to go to Israel, you know you, you don't have to get too far outside of Jerusalem, just past those mountains, where it's, it's wilderness for sure. It's rocky, it's desolate. So for people to get out there to see where John was baptizing, they, they didn't just call an Uber. It wasn't just loading up in the minivan. 
Well, he was a lot of work to get out there, but look at this. Matthew chapter three, verse five. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. People were sacrificing. They were taking time. They were many times even going through dangerous territories to get to a place where they could come out and see this dude, to hear him speak, maybe be baptized by him. John the Baptist was a rock star. He had crowds. He had groupies, the whole bit. He was a big deal. And why? What was he there for? What, what was his mission? Backtrack to verse three. Matthew chapter three, verse three tells us about this is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah. What we're about to read comes straight from Isaiah chapter 40, verse three, that a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John had a mission, and it was prophesied that he would fulfill it. John, you are going to be the one who prepares the way for the Lord, who makes the path straight, who makes the way available. You're the one who's going to open up the doors of opportunity. You're the one who's going to draw attention to. You are the one who is going to prepare the way for the Lord. Kind of a, kind of a cool role to, to have that interaction with Jesus, kind of to be his sidekick, Right When we think of movies or, or stories or media, things that entertain us, so many times there's stories of sidekicks, aren't there? I mean, think about some that, that maybe come to your mind. Like maybe the most natural that might come to many of our minds is Batman and Robin, right? Right away, you think you, you, got, you got Robin, who's the sidekick to Batman. Many of you grew up not with Batman and Robin like I did, but you grew up with these next two, of course, SpongeBob and Patrick. Anybody? <laughs> right? SpongeBob fans in the room? Anybody? They, very rarely do they admit it. God bless you too. I don't know what it means, but God bless you. We kind of had a little resurgence of Top Gun. Anybody remember Maverick and Goose? Right, a couple of sidekicks, people clapping for, I don't know who, but that's cool, all right. And then maybe, maybe that's not your style. Maybe you're more Marvel and you've got the Rocket Raccoon and, and Groot. Anybody? Here's my personal favorite, Chewbacca and Han Solo. Very relevant because I believe John the Baptist probably looked like Chewbacca, right? <laughs> but if you think that, that John the Baptist is just this footnote because he's Jesus' sidekick, you're missing the point of the story. He was so much more than a sidekick. There was so much more going on here. See, because the connection that, that John looked like Elijah and the message that he would be the one who prepared the way for the Lord. He wasn't just a sidekick. Hundreds of years before it was prophesied that John would come. And when he would come, he would come as the second Elijah. In the same way that the first Elijah came and spoke truth to power. In the same way that the first Elijah came and changed the world around him, there would be a second Elijah who would come. Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. This is how the Old Testament, like when you get to the end of the Old Testament in your Bibles, it closes out. And Malachi prophesies, See, I will send the prophet. Elijah to you. Well, Elijah's gone. Who's this going to be? Well, there's going to be another Elijah. That's John the Baptist. He's going to come to you before that great and deadful day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. John's not just some dude's sidekick. He has been sent by God to get people ready because God himself is coming, he has a huge task. When something big is about to happen, 
Preparation is incredibly important. Anybody been in the store lately and walked through the school section? Right, because so many people, especially last weekend, tax-free weekend, right, everybody's going, hey, I gotta get there because I've gotta prepare to go back to school. If you've ever helped plan a wedding, you know it's a big deal because you prepare for that big day. If you've ever had a child or, or maybe you've run a race and you trained for that, there's something that comes your way and you go, I can't just ignore this. This is a big deal. I've gotta get ready for this. I think there's a, there's a spiritual principle that preparation precedes blessing in our lives. And so when we talk about John the Baptist, he's not just this quirky dude in the New Testament. John the Baptist was prophesied about and sent by God to prepare the way for the Lord because he's telling them God's about to show up. Every so often I'll have a conversation with somebody where they go, I just need God to show up in my life. I got this going on, I got that going I got this. I just need God to show up in my life. And then they don't do anything about it. They just kind of say that, or, or they run their mouth about, I mean, they say, th- excuse me, sorry about that. They say things, mm, should have prayed more today. They, they say things, but then you watch and all the things that they say that they don't take any steps. Look, do you believe God wants to show up in your life? And, and like, do this for me right now. Like, stop for just a minute. Like, if you're taking notes, you might want to scratch something at the top or put a little note in your phone. Like, if I asked you the question, where do you need God to show up in your life? What comes to your mind? Like, is it on your job somewhere? Is it in a family relationship? Is it in your own internal struggles? Where if you could make that plea, you'd say, God, I need you to show up. Well, he will. And what we see from the life of John the Baptist is that we prepare for those moments. Like like everything that John did was preparing for God to show up. So here's what I wanna do in these next few moments. And and hold on to that thought about where you need God to show up. I wanna walk you through the rest of this this passage, these these first 12 verses in Matthew chapter three. And I wanna talk about getting ready for God to show up. Because this is everything John does. He helps them to see God's gonna show up, so we've gotta prepare the way. We've gotta get ready. We've gotta make room for him in our lives. And if that's true, those principles from John the Baptist, the same thing's true, those principles in our lives. So let's talk about getting ready for God to show up. To do that, let's go back to a verse that we skipped already in the description of John the Baptist. It says that he came into that wilderness area of Judea and verse two, Matthew chapter three, he was saying as he preached, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. He says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. There's a key phrase there when he talks about the kingdom of heaven coming near. That that terminology, you'll see that in scripture in different places. And you'll notice sometimes that, that you'll hear the term the kingdom of heaven, and sometimes you'll hear the terms the kingdom of God. You ever heard those things? Do you know what the difference is between the two? Nothing. They mean the same thing. The reality is Matthew wrote his gospel to a largely Jewish audience, and there was a Jewish practice that oftentimes you wouldn't speak the name of God. So instead of saying God, shorthand would be to say heaven. So when they talk about the kingdom of heaven, it's kind of a code name for the kingdom of God. Does that make sense? So that's the concept that we see here. And he's saying, hey guys, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, it's here. Make way, because God's showing up. So if you need God to show up in your life, here's the first thing. Number one, it's expectation. The three things we're gonna look at today. 
It's expectation. And we're gonna hear a lot about the kingdom of heaven over the course of these next few weeks as we go through uh, this part of the gospel of Matthew. In fact, in just a few weeks, Matthew chapter four, verse 17, we're gonna read this, that from that time on, Jesus began to preach. So John was preaching in chapter three. Now Jesus is preaching in chapter four. Listen to Jesus' sermon. Repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Sound familiar? Jesus and John are, are preaching the same sermon. And when Jesus' disciples came and asked him to teach them how to pray, he says this in Matthew 6.10. He says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God means that God has showed up to rule and to reign, that he is the one who is breaking into the world in a new way through the ministry of Jesus. And look, the people have been waiting for this. Like for centuries. They've been waiting for a Messiah to show up. They've been waiting for someone to come. And you can't read through the Old Testament without hearing somebody's coming. Somebody's coming. When God spoke to Adam and Eve after the fall in the garden, he promised them that one of their descendants was going was to crush the serpent's head. Someone's coming. When he said, Abraham, it's through you that I'm going to bless the whole world. He says, somebody's coming. When he talked to David about the fact that it was through him that there would be this messianic king, he says, someone is coming. You can't read through the major and the minor prophets in the Old Testament and not hear it whispered and shouted, someone is coming. And then you have this season of time, if you've, if you've studied uh, the scriptures, maybe you've heard that there's, the Old Testament ends and then the New Testament begins, but in that little page that you turn between your Old and New Testament, your Bibles, that's 400 years. And it's often referred to as the 400 silent years. Have you ever heard that term? The 400 silent years? I had a professor in college who called them the 400 not so silent years. Because during that whole time, God was preparing the way for Jesus. And probably during that time, as much as any other, the Jewish people were saying, somebody's coming. We need a Messiah. We need somebody to come and save us. We need somebody to come and help us. We need somebody to come and rescue us. And now John is showing up out in the wilderness and saying, he's here. Who you've been waiting for has come. There was an expectation that they had where they were waiting for someone to come and save them. Which brings me to this thought. Sometimes we say, I just need God to show up. Well, are you expecting God to be active in your life? Like, are you just, are you just saying that? Or do you really expect that God is gonna be active in your life? That he's gonna show up, that he's gonna bring his kingdom, that he's gonna bring his plan, that he's gonna work. And sometimes we're waiting, we're watching for that, but hold on to hope with an expectation that God is gonna show up and be at work in your life. It, it, you, you might know a little bit of this kind of experience. Earlier this year, Ron and I were traveling and we were, we were flying back home and we were waiting in the airport and they told us we were gonna have a delay. Have you noticed more delays lately? Anybody that's been flying? So they told us we were gonna have a delay, so it'd be about an hour. Okay, cool, so we wait. And then they're like, hey, the plane you're, you're supposed to fly out on has a mechanical issue, but they're gonna fly the part in. So it'll be about another hour. Okay, all right, great. Hey, the part just got here. It'll take us a while to fix it. It'll be about another hour. And it was another hour for about nine hours. 
Because then it was, well, we're working on your plane. And then it was, well, we're almost done. And then it was, well, we got the part in. And then it was, well, we can take off as soon as the sealant around the part dries. Time out. I ain't flying in a, in a wet part plane. And then they come and they're like, well, surprise, we're gonna move you to another plane. And that's how I knew there was a God, right? I ain't flying on that. Put somebody else on that one. I prayed somebody else into that plane. Can I get an amen? I think it was, I think it was close to nine hours, wasn't it? That we're just sitting there. We're just, we're just waiting, waiting, waiting to the point. At one point, I'm like, man, we might get stuck here overnight. I don't know if we're gonna get home. Now, the good news is it was Fort Lauderdale, bless God. The bad news is I was in the airport. And I'm waiting, but holding out hope that whole time, at some point, this is all gonna take off. Like some point, what I'm expecting is going to happen. And you might be in a place where you wonder, is God gonna show up? Is God gonna step in? Is God gonna do what I need him to do? Is God gonna respond in some way? Does God hear my prayers? And can I tell you, hold on to hope and keep expecting. And if you wanna see God do a work in your life, you have to have an expectation and believe that he will. Here's one of the things that's interesting. When you read about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven in scripture, there's this unique part that's there that sometimes when we use that term kingdom of God, it's talking about things that are happening right now. And sometimes when we use that word kingdom of God, it's talking about things that are going to happen in the future. Have you ever noticed that? It's like both present and future. And the scripture doesn't always kind of differ between the two. It doesn't always distinguish. I, I think maybe because we read in scripture that a, the, that a thousand years is like a day with the Lord and a day like a thousand years. Do you remember that passage? So we're getting impatient. And God's like, it's only been a couple days. But you and I need to realize something interesting about the kingdom of God because I, I have a tendency to go, well, if the kingdom of God has come, then why are things still the way they are? If the kingdom of God is here, why are things still a mess? Can I get an amen? <laughs> Have you ever seen that? Isn't it true? Like, are things still a mess? Yes or no? Help me out. Yeah, things are still a mess. So God, if your kingdom's here, then why are things still a mess? Because there's this interesting biblical principle that we see. I don't have it on the screens, but I want you to listen to this verse. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. John says, dear friends, now, 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 now we are children of God. He only said it once, but I repeated it. Now we are children of God. And what will be has not yet been made known. He says, you are a child of God now. But what God is fully gonna do in your life has not yet been made known. You, you have it now, but not yet. It's like when you get engaged, when you know you're committed to a person, and now you are in this lifelong committed relationship. But there's things that come with marriage that while you're engaged are not yet. True? Legally, physically, Personal, all these things, right? Maybe even a better example is, um, if you ever bought a house and you go, you go to the title agency and you, you sign all the paperwork and they give you that paperwork, they tell you when the payments are gonna start, they say, now it's your house, but you don't get possession for 30 days. So somebody else is still living there. So now it's your house. When do you live there? Not yet. <laughs> Does that make sense? 
Like, and the same thing is true in a spiritual and theological sense. We read about how we are adopted by God, and yet we're really not yet. We read about how we're redeemed by him, but we're still living in this mess. We read about how we're saved and how we've been raised with Christ, and yet we're still here. We read about how he sanctified us. Anybody sinned in the last 10 years? And we go, look, if I have it now, how come not yet? Let me show you this little kind of theological concept and we'll, we'll kind of maybe draw it out a little bit for you. So first, let me, let me draw a white line here. Did you see that? Yeah. I did that. This is this age where we live. This is right now. So this is, this is the time and space in the world that we live in, kind of starting with creation here and then going on until what we would often refer to as the end of time. That's this age. Now, there, there was a very significant event most significant event in all of human history that happened that kind of separates this age, and it was, let me just kind of, yeah. And this was Jesus' first coming, right? When Jesus came down, that would be when we talk about Christmas and his birth, when we talk about Good Friday and his crucifixion, when we talk about Easter and his resurrection, that's all kind of symbolized right here. And have you ever heard the term the last days? Anybody ever heard that term? We believe that with Jesus first coming, when he came down, kind of from this line over, that would symbolize what we refer to as the last days. And it started in this age, that the last days of this age started with Jesus first coming, but something else started when Jesus came. When Jesus came, he not only started the last days in this age, but at the same time he started, as you'll see this blue line up here, what we will refer to as the age to come what leads us into heaven, what leads us into eternity, what leads us into a place where there is perfect healing and sanctification and salvation and redemption and being in God's presence. Now, we know we have all these things here, but many of them won't fully exist until we're there. And what's interesting, you have both things happening at the same time. Does that make sense? Look, you own the house, but you don't have possession yet. She's wearing the ring, but it'll be a while before you say, I do. And we live in this weird tension, and at some point, in the same way that Jesus came down, we'll read about when he will come down again, and even when we will go up to him in the rapture, and that will be Jesus' second coming. How many of you believe Jesus is coming again? And what will happen at that time is this is the beginning of the last days. That's gonna be the last, the end of the last days and Jesus will come and will be ushered into the age to come where we will fully realize everything he promises about his kingdom. But do you know where we live right now? We live right here, don't we? And the theological term that you'll hear sometimes is that we live in the now but not yet. Like we have it now but not yet. You have all of the blessings that God has to bring but not yet have all of them been realized. So that's why we believe that Jesus delivers us, doesn't he? And yet we still live in a broken world. We believe that God is our healer. Anybody? And yet every time we pray, we don't always see healing. Like there are things that don't always make sense to us, but it's because we live in this tension between these two worlds, between the now, but not yet. So that's why when you're sitting in the terminal, waiting for things to take off, when you're wondering why your deliverance or your healing or God showing up hasn't happened yet, it's because his kingdom is here, 
but it doesn't always fully show up the way we want it to because we're still living in this time where we own the house, but we don't have possession yet. We're in the now, but not yet. Are you with me? Does that make sense? So I wanna encourage you that you might not see everything you're praying for right now. You might not have seen God show up, but can I tell you, he will and he's going to. It's just you might have to wait a little while. So that's why we, we watch for the kingdom of God with expectation. But go back to the sermon that John was preaching. Simple one, same sermon Jesus will preach. Matthew chapter three, verse two. John's saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. He doesn't just say the kingdom of heaven has come near. He leads it with this, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Jesus is coming. The king is coming. The kingdom is about to be here. The king is showing up, so repent. The, the second thing that we do to get ready for God to show up, number two, is repentance. This was a huge part, this idea of repentance, turning away from our sin and turning towards God was a huge part of what John the Baptist came to communicate to the point that, remember he was a rock star, remember me telling you about that? People would come out and flock to him, he had groupies, he had a staff, he had all these things going on. Matthew chapter three, verse six tells us that people came out confessing their sins and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. So this is why we, we believe that we dedicate infants, we dedicate children, which is what we did today. We don't practice baptism because we believe that baptism, according to the scriptural principle, is something that you do out of a conscious decision to follow Jesus. Does that make sense? So that's why we celebrate baptisms one way, dedications in another, and these people were coming out, and one of the key parts of why this was all happening was repentance. What's repentance mean? What's it look like? Can I show you real quick what we'll just call some elements of repentance? Because, because as you read the story of John the Baptist, and it's in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it's in all four gospels, as you read the story of John the Baptist, each, each writer gives you a little bit of a different look. So when he talks about repentance, when he talks about that in the gospel of Luke, Luke highlights some things a little bit different than how, how John does or how Matthew does or how Mark does. So let me show you a little bit about what Luke says. So John's preaching repentance. And in the gospel of Luke, we read this, Luke chapter three, verse 10, the people says, what should we do then, the crowd asked. <laughs> he says, you need to repent. And they're like, okay, what do we do, John? How do we do this? What's the step that we need to take? Which highlights something. If you're wondering in your own life if you're repentant, if you're wondering how do I deal with the things that I know don't belong in my life, know this, that repentance is teachable. If you're truly repentant, then you're gonna have a spirit that acknowledges that and that is teachable. One of our roles as parents, especially when our kids are little, is to often call them out on the things that they should not be doing. Isn't that true? In fact, sometimes, as a parent, and you don't have to nod or confess this, but I know this is true of you because I know it's true of my warped self. Sometimes calling them out was actually enjoyable, <laughs> right? Because you, you knew you busted them. Not because you wanted to bust them, but because sometimes it was good for them to learn that that was wrong, and sometimes you were proud because you were a detective. Anybody know what I'm talking about? <laughs> and you're like, hey, did you do that? And you knew the difference between when they broke and they were like, I shouldn't have done it. Please forgive me, don't kick me out. You know, whatever. And then it's like, wasn't me, it was her. I didn't do it. I didn't eat the cookies, which is why there's chocolate all over your face. Right, or whatever it might have been. 
And there's a difference between the two, isn't it? You know the difference between a heart that is teachable and sees it, and that one that looks for excuses and rationalizations and how to push it off on somebody else or something else. If you find that in your heart, you're trying to push and rationalize away when the Spirit is speaking to you, here's, here's what I know. In this room, auditorium two, watching online, watching TV, listening to the podcast right now, for many of us, as soon as I said repentance, something came to your mind. Something where you go, I know that's not right in my life. I know that that action, that attitude, I don't, I don't have to do that. Because that's, that's the work that the Holy Spirit brings, not of condemnation, but of conviction. Because he knows that those are things that keep us from experiencing his kingdom. And if you find that in, in moments when the word repentance comes up, that your first response is to get defensive, that's not being teachable. And it might be something you need to explore. So the people come out and they go, okay, John, you said repentance. What do we gotta do? Verse, verse 11 of Luke chapter three, John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none, and anyone who has food should do the same. Here's what he's saying. Hey, guys, deal with that attitude that says what's mine is mine. Because oftentimes, that, that's something that's a hard thing to, to deal with. In fact, he takes it another layer. Watch this, verse, verse 12. It says that even tax collectors came to be baptized. We talked about tax collectors a couple of months ago. They not only took the taxes that the government said, they took a little for themselves. Do you remember that? And Jesus says, um, the tax collectors, teacher they asked, I don't know where, Jesus is coming later. This is John the Baptist, forgive me. Teacher they asked, what should we do? John says, don't collect any more than you're required to, he told them. What? Like, like, but John, I've got it coming to me. It's, it's mine. And he says, if you've got an attitude where your first response is, well, I have it coming to me, and that's probably one you should repent of. And then there's verse 14, where then some soldiers asked him, what should we do? And he replied, don't extort money, and don't accuse people falsely, and be content with your pay. He wasn't just saying to them, Hey, get rid of the attitude that says, I have it coming to me. Get rid of the attitude that says, well, they have it coming to them. You ever had that one? Well, they deserve it. They'll get what they have coming to them. And when you see those attitudes cropping up inside of you, those are some things that John says we should take a good look at because repentance does not look out for self. Not only is it teachable, but it's, it's not looking out for itself. It has an openness to what God wants to do. Which then, let's go back to what Matthew says because Matthew then hones in very specifically on one group of people when he retells the story of John the Baptist. Matthew chapter three, verse seven. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees, who are those people? They're the religious rulers, the leaders, coming to where John was baptizing. He said to them, you brood of vipers. I want you to try that next time somebody cuts you off in traffic. Next week, you pull into the parking lot here at church and somebody takes your spot, you hop out of your car and go, you brood of vipers. You're the offspring of snakes is what that means. Don't do it. It's hard language. Hey, snake family. Who warned you to flee from the wrath that's to come? He says, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. That's what they were saying. They were like, you know what makes us cool? 
where we come from, who we are, what we've done, and kind of focus in on themselves. We got Abraham as our father. He says, I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham, which in the Chad Gilligan version says, you ain't nothing. And here's the deal, repentance does not rely on self. So many times when I have issues, when I have challenges, I I think I can fix it, I can make it right, I can get past this, I can get on the other side of this. If I'm truly repentant, repentance does not rely on self. It sees the need that we have for God. Why? Because repentance, and this, this is John's point, repentance is radical transformation. It's when our lives are radically changed by the work of God in our lives. And for some of us, we truly need to take a look inside and say, is there somewhere, something that is deep under the surface that if I don't deal with this, has the potential to blow up in a really bad way? Do you know there's been like a heat wave in Europe this summer? Have you seen about this? Like unusual high temperatures, which has led to drought, and that drought has led in in some significant parts of Europe that the water tables, river levels, have gone down lower than they have in, in decades. And one of these is a place called the Po River in Italy. And right along the banks of the Po, as the water's gone down, what they found was there was a bomb that was there from World War II a thousand pound bomb that had been dropped and never exploded that's been sitting under the water for decades and now has emerged because the water level has gone down and now they, now they see it, that it's there. So they went and they, they took the fuse out of this thing and they realized we've gotta take this somewhere and, and detonate it. They realized inside of it is 530 pounds of explosives. So they come up with a plan to do this because they can't just blow it up right there in the residential area where it is, so they have to move it about 30 miles away to a quarry. And so they contacted about 3,000 people who lived in the area and the route where they would be going, and they said, hey, we, we need to move this thing. And many of them were like, well, I'm not going anywhere. This is my house. I'm not leaving, you can't talk. And they had to work to convince people, just don't be home when we drive by. Like, just, just get away because you don't want this thing to explode. And they eventually were able to get it to the quarry and they detonated it and it was a good show and nobody got hurt and, and that. But here's the thing I want you to see. Some of you have things in your life, ah, let's change that. All of us have things in our lives that have a tendency to be under the surface. And if we don't deal with those things, they have the tendency and the ability to blow up on us if we're not careful. Anybody? And how we deal with that is repentance. It's a radical transformation that, that, that when those things get unearthed in our lives, that we're willing to say, I've gotta get that thing as far away from here as I can. And too many times we go, well, what's mine is mine, and I'm taking care of self, and, and I've got to do what I've got to do, and I can handle, and all these things, when, when ultimately what repentance means is that I realize that I'm going in a direction away from God in this part of my life, and I've gotta stop, and I've gotta turn, and it may mean that I leave something behind, and that I've gotta move towards him. Here's why John says so clearly, if the kingdom of heaven is coming, you need to repent repent. Like you need to change. The reason he stresses this is that repentance makes room in our lives for Jesus. Like there's things we got to get out of the way so that the kingdom can actually come in. And and repentance is so much, we, we live in this world where repentance is unique. 
Because right now in our culture, if you do the wrong things, you just get canceled, true? Like we just cancel you, there's no room for repentance. The other thing we have in our culture is this idea that if I just say I'm sorry, then everything's okay. Here's the reality, repentance brings the opportunity for forgiveness. But it's a whole lot more than just saying, oh sorry. There's confession. There's recognizing that the direction I was going was the wrong way. And there's things that need to, there's radical transformation because I've got to make room for Jesus in my life. Which leads us to the last thought I want to share with you quickly. Matthew chapter three, verse 11. John says, I baptize you with water for repentance. But after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Maybe next week we'll look a little bit more about this idea of the Holy Spirit and fire, but here's what I want you to see here. He's, John says, after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. You'll see this in just about every passage in the Gospels about John the Baptist. That when John talks about Jesus, he says, Jesus, he's greater than I am. He's more important than I am. I'm, I'm not even fit to tie his shoes. He, he's so much greater than, than me. And he acknowledges this over and over again, which I wanna show you a third thing. If you're, if you're getting ready for God to show up, a key, key, key thing is that you have number three, humility. That you watch with expectation, that you allow repentance to come into your life, and that you address God with humility. Think of what a big deal that was. John was a rock star. He's got people coming out and telling him how great he is and how they wanna be around him and how important it is. And you know that can get pretty trippy, can it? Like that can start to mess with your head. And yet John had to have a life of humility that says, no, he's, he's greater than I am. Can, can I give you a little warning, especially for those of us that maybe have served God for a long time in our lives? I, I've seen this in my life and I've seen it in some other people's as well. The longer you're in the kingdom, the easier it is to start to think that you're the king. Like as the blessings of God come into our lives, as we kind of know what it is to live in and for him, we can get so settled in the places where we are that if anything changes or challenges that, we have a hard time remembering that in this kingdom, he's actually the king, not just us. Does that make sense? And John says, I gotta safeguard my heart from this. And he practices humility. Real quick, I wanna show you one, one more story from a different gospel. In the gospel of John, we read this about John the Baptist. John chapter three, there's this story that, that Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where Jesus spent some time with them and baptized. So now Jesus is in the baptism business which shows us this wasn't just some kind of fluke from John. This is why baptism is important for us as well today. Jesus models it, Jesus practices it, and you see Jesus out there doing this as well. And now John was also baptizing at Anon near Salim because there was plenty of water. Isn't that interesting, plenty of water? This is why we believe scripturally that we immerse people in baptism, not sprinkle, because there was a lot of water, which tells us he wasn't John the sprinkler, he was John the dunker. Does that make sense? So they're out there, there's plenty of water, and people, scripture tells us, were coming and being baptized 
This was before John was put in prison. We'll get to that when we get to Matthew chapter 12. So an argument, this is verse 25, an argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. Isn't that interesting? So John's, John's crew's out there, they're doing their thing, and then this, this certain Jew, is all we know, shows up, and they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, who's he talking about there? Jesus, the one you testified about. Look, he's baptizing, and everyone's going to him. John, Jesus is stealing your gig. This certain Jew comes and is the stick that stirs the pot in this story, isn't it? Here's, here's an encouragement. When God does show up, get ready because there will always be someone stirring up trouble. Have you found that to be true? Somebody's always gonna show up and stir up a little bit of trouble. That's just, a, that's just an encouragement for you to know. That's not even in this sermon. You got that part for free. You're welcome, you're welcome. Watch what John says. To this, John replied, a person can receive only what is given to them from heaven. And you yourselves can testify that I said, I'm not the Messiah, but I'm sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom, and the friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him, and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, and it's now complete. If, if you don't hear anything else, if you don't remember anything else from this message today, don't miss verse 30. He must become greater and I must become less. John, Jesus is uh, he's taking some of your territory. He must become greater and I must become less. John, there's uh, the, the new guys um, moving in on your, your people. He must become greater and I must become less. If there's anything that we need to remember that will make a difference in if the kingdom of God can move into your life or not, he must become greater and I must become less. There's a saying that says, it takes more grace than I can tell to play the second fiddle well. Isn't that true? <laughs> but it's true in our lives. I, I learned this passage of scripture from the King James Version. It stuck with me. He must increase and I must decrease. He must become greater I must become less. Well, I'm the, I'm the only one who can fix this situation. He must become greater, and I must become less. Well, how am, how am I gonna, this, this marriage is gonna fall apart unless I, he must become greater, and I must become less. Yeah, well, I got this challenge with my kid, and I just don't know how I'm gonna, he must become greater, and I must become less. Well, there's this situation at work, and every time it's, he must become greater, and I must become less. I'm not sure how I'm gonna make it through this season because he must become greater, and I must become less. When he increases and we decrease, there's something powerful that happens in our lives. A couple of Saturdays ago, we were, we were gonna do some yard work outside. And so Rhonda went on outside and I was wrapping up whatever I was doing inside the house and I come walking out and I thought we were gonna like mow the grass and do some different things. And I come out and she, she started cleaning out the garage. And that was not the will of God for that day or for my life. And I was like, what you doing? She's like, well, I started moving a couple things around, and when I moved that, I started moving that, and then when I moved that, I started moving that, and then when that got moved, I thought, well, I about to move that, and then I might wanna, you know what I'm talking about? I was like, I don't wanna do this. And then we started 
moving things and cleaning stuff around and moving stuff out. And it was, you know, you're doing all this kind of stuff. And I'm just, just to be honest, your pastor wasn't always pleasant. <laughs> because there were things that Rhonda wanted to deal with that I just, I didn't want to deal with. She's not necessarily a keeper. And I believe if God has given it to us, we shall maintain it. Can I get an amen? And she's like, that's not even ours. That belonged to three owners ago. We don't need that trash. And so what I thought was just gonna be a little bit of yard work turned into the whole day in the garage. But guess what? I walked in there yesterday. Used to be you'd walk in and you feared for your life. Do you know what I'm talking about? Somewhere there's a booby trap. Something's gonna explode. And I walked in yesterday and I could actually turn around without dying. I had to find something. Guess where it was? Where it belonged. Everything's in a place and you can work in there. You can do stuff. You can find things. You can do all this kind of stuff. But what it took was we had to get in there and we had to deal with all this other stuff so that we could get in there and actually enjoy and use and be and, and, and all those things that are there. And what happened was I had so much stuff that needed to go, I had to become less so that space could become greater. And some of you are going, hey, I'm just waiting for God to show up. And can I give you just a word of advice? If you want God to show up, you might have to get out of the way. He must increase and I must decrease. And if you're looking for God to show up in your life, you might have to get out of the way. And when I wrote that in my notes, I put that word might, and the longer I've thought about it, I just, if, I, if I could, I'd just scratch it out. Because <laughs> if you want God to show up, you have to get out of the way. And you have to give him that place in your life. He must increase, and we must decrease. And that's so very important. So can I ask you just to bow your heads and close your eyes with me for a moment, whether you're in this room you're listening to this or watching on a screen somewhere. And I wanna take a couple lessons from one of the most unusual quirky dudes in scripture. And in just a moment, we're gonna sing a prayer that we've sung for a long time that says, Lord, I need you. Every hour I need you. But before we do, would you stop for just a moment? Go back to that place we talked about earlier in the message. Where's the place that you need God to show up? And ask yourself, do you really expect that he will? And I kinda wanna speak to those who have been waiting for God to show up somewhere and you're starting to lose heart. He's already promised that he will, and I don't know why it's not yet. But things are gonna take off someday. And so don't lose hope today. Hold on and believe. And then trust him with expectation. And I, I wanna encourage those of you who when the word repentance came up, so did something else in your mind then you know that under the surface, almost like a bomb that hasn't exploded yet, there's things that you've got to deal with. That in this moment, you'd be willing to say, God, would you bring a radical transformation so that I'll change direction and start heading from you in those areas. I'll move right towards you. 
And for all of us, it's an encouragement to take a posture of humility, to get out of the way, so that in those places God can increase, we will decrease, so that he'll become greater in our lives. It may even be that you're here today and you would say, I've tried it on my own and I can't do it anymore. And what I need more than anything else is Jesus. I've searched and I've looked and I can't find satisfaction anywhere else. And I need the forgiveness that only he can bring. And I need the purpose and peace that only he can give. And so today, I need to give Jesus my life. There's no better time than right now. So I'm gonna pray a real quick prayer and then we're gonna stand together and we're, we're gonna sing a song that says, Lord, I need you. And would you make that song your prayer as we trust in God today? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how it speaks to us. Lord, we need you to show up in our lives. And so with expectation and with repentance and humility, we look to you and we simply say, God, we need you today in Jesus' name. Would you stand with us as we sing this song together? Lord, I call, I confess, bowing here, I find my rest, and without you, I just asked two quick questions that if you would say, God, there is a, there's a place, there's a situation in our family, in my life, there's a place, God, where we just, we need you to show up. If that's you, would you just raise a hand right where you are? You, you know, you came to your mind, you wrote it down, God, we need you to show up. Right now, with humility, would you just say, God, we give it to you, your kingdom come. 
Here's a second question. If you're here and you would say, I just can't do it on my own anymore. And whether for the first time or the hundredth time, I've simply got to say, Jesus, I give you my life. I need your forgiveness. I repent. I need your help and your purpose. Lord, I need you and I give myself to you. If that's you, just raise your hand right where you are. Lord, I give myself to you. If you raised your hand either one of those times, if you know Jesus is your Savior and Lord, or today you need him to be, would you pray this prayer with me? Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for Jesus, for sending your son to die for my sin. And I ask today that you would forgive my sin and be my Savior. I give myself to you, my risen Lord. And today I pray that you would show up in my life. I expect to see you, Jesus. I repent of those places that have kept you away. And humbly, I decrease so that you can increase. Become greater in my life. In Jesus' name, amen. And Father, we thank you for your word and we pray that throughout the course of this week, in those critical moments, would you speak to us, show us who you are. Let us see your hand at work. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, if you raised a hand and said that you wanted to give your life to Jesus, especially for the first time today, I wanna encourage you, we're gonna have friends on the sides over here at the platform after the service. Come on down and allow them the opportunity to pray with you. Maybe you just need someone to pray with you today. They would love to do that. If you don't have a Bible that you could easily read or understand, stop on by. We'd love to talk to you more about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Thanks for being with us today. Have a great week. Go with his special favor and his wonderful peace. We'll see you next Sunday.